Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Table. One landmark bit of research after the Brexit referendum looked at hundreds of different issues and which, if any, was a good indicator of how people voted on Brexit. It wasn't on immigration. It wasn't on taking back control. It was an issue which hadn't been discussed at all in the referendum campaign. The death penalty. Brexit, Eric Kaufman argues, was a story of personal values. And the kind of people likely to vote for Brexit were the kind of people to also strongly favour the death penalty. Today I'm joined by Lizzie Seal, Professor of Criminology at Sussex University, to look at changing attitudes to the death penalty. Lizzie, welcome to the bunker. Hello. Um... A cheerful topic, but uh, the death penalty was abolished in most of the UK nearly 60 years ago. Why does it remain so popular with so many people? Well, I think part of the reason that the death penalty remained reasonably popular with people was um, we had it for a long time. So I think people sort of had an expectation that the worst penalty, the ultimate penalty is the death penalty. And that the death penalty symbolises taking the worst crimes seriously. It is a very symbolic punishment. I think all punishments are symbolic to a degree, but the death penalty obviously is life and death. It is especially symbolic. It has this place as being kind of the worst penalty. So it tends to symbolise other things for people as well, such as order, control, things like that. So, so this very much goes to this psychological idea of people who are open to the idea of either an open society or a closed society. You know, you you are very comfortable with uncertainty, or you are very uncomfortable with uncertainty. In which case, you want to clamp down some order on all of this. Is that right? Yes. I mean, whether I'd call it certainty and uncertainty, I think yes, definitely. Where people talk about order and they see that as needing. Um, strong policing, strong punishment, often it's linked to approval for the death penalty. But that's not to say that people can't have other conceptions of order, but they might see that being achieved differently. And I've seen you actually um, wrote a bit about the role of fear in all of this. I mean, do you want to maybe uh, elaborate on that a bit? Absolutely. Again, as we've been talking about these ideas of um, all these feelings towards order, security and so forth, that where people um, feel afraid, they may feel afraid of crime. But again, this may kind of symbolise being uh, more widely afraid of social disorder. Again, that can be linked to sort of pro-death penalty views or pro-death penalty feeling. Now, again, of course, people don't always necessarily want the death penalty specifically to achieve that order. And we've mentioned this idea of changes over time. And I think over time, the death penalty probably symbolises that a bit less for people. But if we're talking around the mid 20th century, the death penalty was an important symbol of, you know, having this, uh, having order protected. Perhaps we can um, backtrack a little for our listeners and talk a bit about how the death penalty came to be abolished in Britain, because uh, it didn't happen in one go. It came in fits and starts, and uh, it sometimes seemed to have been in spite of public opinion as well. Yes. I mean, the abolition of the death penalty, of course, can be told as quite a long story, mm. which I enjoy doing, but I'll try to make it more concise. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's a mixture of things, of course, that led to the abolition of the death penalty. A really important thing was um, having Labour governments. Once we had Labour governments, they were much more likely 
to be sympathetic towards abolition, the Labour government did abolish the death penalty. And not necessarily Labour voters, but certainly Labour MPs were much more likely to be abolitionist than Conservatives. So that was something that was quite important. There had been campaigns against the death penalty, particularly from the 1930s onwards. These became stronger. Now, these were always a fairly sort of like minority pursuit. But nevertheless, the sort of penal reform groups who waged these campaigns, they had links with MPs, what would be called kind of insider groups where they did have the ear of sort of important, you know, politicians and important people. Um, So there were campaigns actively for abolition. So I think that's important to take into account. But something I've also argued is that there were shifts in how people felt about the death penalty. It became more controversial. And I think that helped to enable abolition, because once something sort of has that controversy, it becomes more troublesome for the government. So it's sort of troublesome that sometimes you're getting cases where people are very upset by them or concerned by them, certain executions upset people. And and there are, yes, a few high profile cases like that, which really do become major national issues. Yes. And so perceived miscarriages of justice were quite important, uh, well, perceived and actual. So famously, uh, Timothy Evans was hanged and had not um, murdered anybody. And there were other cases like Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hanged, who she did kill somebody, but people saw strong mitigating circumstances and yet she wasn't reprieved. So there were cases like these. And then another reason I think we can give is that if we think about uh, Britain in the mid-20th century, there had been the development of quite a comprehensive welfare state. I think the relationship between citizens and the government had changed into a context where hanging your citizens becomes harder. And that's not to say people, if you ask them, would say, oh, they don't want the death penalty. But this thing of cases becoming more fraught, becoming more difficult, becoming very emotional um, had definitely happened. And you've written about the changes in public opinion, um, but how has support for the death penalty changed, particularly since abolition? It has declined, basically. I'm not a kind of quantitative researcher. I don't compile statistics. But if you look at polls, I think it slightly depends how questions are phrased. I think in a straightforward sort of do people want the death penalty or not in relation to this country, that is now below 50%. There is a decline in terms of people being likely to say they're in favour of the death penalty. There's very much a generational breakdown within that of younger people being less likely to support the death penalty. But it's still very much mid-range compared to other countries. I mean, you know, there are countries where it's less popular than in the UK as as well. If I remember the breakdown, it's sort of a little over 20% solidly believe in the death penalty and then something like about 30-35% might believe in it in certain circumstances, Mm -hmm. as you say, depending on how they ask the question. Does it stand in contrast? I mean, how does it compare to wider British social attitudes? You know, if you look at um, all sorts of issues, you know, um, abortion, contraception, divorce, casual sex, all sorts of things, even just homosexuality, these are all things which 10, 15, well, about 30 years ago, they would have had about 10, 15 percent support of people saying this is okay, And that now stands at more like about half the population, you know, depends on how you measure it. Um, how does, I mean, it's a different trajectory, isn't it? Uh, death penalty support? 
Yes, it is a different trajectory from that. And I think that could be because punishment is a slightly different issue from those other issues that you've mentioned, in that I can see how people might have a notion of, well, you know, a measure of personal freedom in how people live their everyday lives is important, yet there need to be measures to... Uh, enact retribution or be a deterrent or, you know, ensure social order that people could view alongside being more liberal on some of those other issues without it being hugely contradictory, I suppose. And as a country, we are a reasonable, let's say, to compare us perhaps with some other European countries, we are a fairly punitive one. So that is also represented in things like the size of our prison population. So in terms of the kind of culture of punishment that we have in this country, I suppose you could see it as being quite consistent if in Britain you find a little bit higher support among the population for the idea or the notion of the death penalty than perhaps in some other comparable countries. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the, the re-offending rate in the UK um, and the resentencing rate remains very high compared to a lot of other countries. Um, and perhaps there's a sense of despair out of that, if you know what else can we do? Or, or do we look at it actually that analytically? Or is it more of an emotional gut feeling? I think it's probably not that analytical. Because for a start, a lot of those kinds of crimes that you're just mentioning where people reoffend and they might go back to prison and stuff, I mean, they're really not capital type crimes. And I really think you wouldn't find many people who wanted to like reintroduce <laughs> the bloody code, which is when, no, no. you know, lots and lots and lots of crimes carried the death penalty. I agree it's more, I think, emotional, symbolic. It's standing for a wider range of issues. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. We used to talk a lot about the ideas of people being hangers and floggers. Is there much overlap between support for capital punishment and support for corporal punishment? Certainly when I did research about the mid-20th century, so in the era when um, we still had the death penalty, but uh, it was very much kind of in question... Yes, I would say that in the kind of expression of views that I looked at, people might mention the need for like the cat and nine tails, as well as being very uh, enthusiastically in support of the death penalty. So we're sort of like seeing a place for bodily punishments. I don't know what you find in the sort of current context. I know they have asked people questions about would they support public whipping and things like that. But I would have thought that for most people that would seem, even for people who might say they see a role for the death penalty in certain circumstances, that something like public whipping really would belong to um, a different yeah, set of no, views. Yeah, no, I, 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 think that's, I, mean. I think that's A more totally minority fair. set of views. I think views. that's totally fair. And if we think of modern democracies that retain the death penalty, 
uh, like the United States, then or certain states within the United States, and of course they have the federal death penalty. They, you know, don't have uh, sort of caning and birching as criminal punishments. So I think shifts in what's understood as modern punishment have affected that. No, I think that's very fair. What I was more getting at was with my historian's hat on and the way that if you look, for example, at some of the debates of the past, for instance, attempts in the late 30s and attempts in the late 40s at the repeal of capital punishment, very often... Um, overturned or blocked in the House of Lords at a fairly late stage. Mm-hmm. And very often the speeches that are pushing for capital punishment went hand in hand with a rather more, let's say, punitive approach to the justice system as a whole across the board. I agree with you that if we're talking about 30s, 40s, I think particularly people who would see the death penalty as something important and they were very strongly in favour of would be highly likely to be in favour of um, corporal punishment as a criminal punishment as well. And would see that as kind of, yeah, I think being this package of this is what you need for retribution, but it's also helping to keep order, you know, those kinds of views. What about the contrast between this country and the USA? I mean, there, for example, supporting the death penalty is almost an article of faith for anyone who has a career in politics, um, even on the left as well as the right. So, you know, famously, there was a case of Governor Bill Clinton uh, overseeing the execution of a mentally handicapped man in his state when he was running for president as a way of showing that he was tough on crime. And you often get these otherwise very progressive politicians who feel the need to say, um, of course, we back the death penalty. Of course, we accept uh, that it has a deterrent effect. We accept the rational reasons for it. We do it rationally, but, uh, but you know, nonetheless, regrettably and necessarily. Um, that's a very different discourse. And, and maybe there's a contrast in attitudes that that feeds into. In the United States, a very interesting context. It has shifted In recent times, so you're quite right, the 1990s, a real high point in, or well, depending how you look at it, a high point in support and use of the death penalty in the United States. Democratic presidential candidates also had to be in favour of the death penalty, uh, like Bill Clinton, because if they weren't, it could um, affect their chances. That happened in the 1988 election to the Democratic candidate, Michael Dukakis. Uh, And the legacy of that was really reflected in Bill Clinton not um, pardoning Ricky Ray Rector, the man that you referred to, who didn't really understand what was about to happen to him. You can see a shift now in that uh, the United States does not execute us, or the states that have the death penalty do not execute as many people anymore. They don't sentence as many people to death. Democratic politicians are more comfortable with saying they oppose the death penalty. Joe Biden, when running for president, said he wanted to abolish the federal death penalty. He hasn't been as consistent on that in office. And that's something people have criticised. However, you do have this very interesting situation in the US where um, if you go back eight to 10 years, There were quite a few Republicans as well who weren't so keen on the death penalty, and that's because the American death penalty is very expensive. So some Republicans were saying, you know, this is government money. We're not in favour of, you know, high spend from the government. The death penalty is very um, expensive. It was that kind of an argument. However, post kind of Trump and that kind of Republicanism, the death penalty um, in sort of discourse, as you say, the way that politics is being talked about, I think very much has a resurgence among those kinds of Republicans. Donald Trump, of course, very much in favour of the death penalty and used the federal death penalty to a much higher degree than had been done before. 
somebody like Ron DeSantis says, you know, how much he likes the death penalty. And so that kind of populist Republican style definitely reaches for the death penalty as something that would be, you know, as we've been talking about, symbolic of a wider package in terms of kind of issues and approaches. And it really does seem to represent the wider polarisation of American politics, you know, that actually there is a massive segment moving in the more liberal direction and a massive segment moving in the more authoritarian direction who can't generalise about the country as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is very much true about the United States. And in fact, the the practice of punishment across the states. I mean, some of the states are more punitive than others have a more punitive history. There's all this kind of background to take into account. As you say, of course, different political views also affect, you know, how people feel about the death penalty. But it it is and was sort of, as it's been termed, a culture war issue, definitely. Feeding into that, I mean, I used at the beginning the um, idea of Brexit voters being very likely to share values of voters um, who believe in the death penalty. Other obvious correlations, predictors, I'm I'm, reluctant to say causes, but are there things that, that are likely to overlap in that way, attitudes that go hand in hand with that? I mean, I think it goes along with social conservatism um, for the most part, or in a country like Britain, I, I think it goes along with a sort of a social conservatism, often. So I think with, you know, something like Brexit, people who say they would support the reintroduction of the death penalty, I think often, no doubt, would have been leave voters. But there are certainly lots of leave voters who don't necessarily... Absolutely, uh, I think that, There are lots of leave clear, voters yes. who don't... Yeah, support the reintroduction of the death penalty. So it's a kind of a social conservatism where people shade more into, I mean, the word you mentioned, authoritarianism, definitely then they'll like the death penalty. And I think authoritarianism is probably the biggest predictor for whether if people have authoritarian views and indeed authoritarian um, type governments as well will be likely the ones that have the death penalty. Of course, there are exceptions. There are democracies with the death penalty. I mean, there's also been a very steady stream in this country of politicians who have over the years called for the return of the death penalty. It's certainly more of a niche issue now than it was. But certainly yeah, prior absolutely. to 1997, it was the case that every parliament, uh, you'd have at least one free vote that would be held on should we bring back uh, the capital punishment. Where do you think this is motivated from? I mean, is it is it motivated by politicians or is it motivated by public support? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it is motivated by attempting to appeal to a certain kind of public support, probably, and a, uh, giving a certain amount of emotional satisfaction to people who would like the reintroduction of the death penalty. And then in terms of particular politicians, whether that goes along with their views more widely, I think, you know, that's also going to be a motivating factor. As you say, that's much less the the case now, although I did find Lee Anderson's comment, recent comments about the death penalty interesting slash very worrying. But something else that does influence, has um, sort of since abolition influenced the conversation and the political conversation is often sort of particular crimes, so, um, or particular murders, I should say. So, for example, terrorist murders can often be linked to an upsurge in approval for the death penalty, or perhaps um, if we're going back, you know, some number of years, suggestions in votes in Parliament to reintroduce it. Particularly upsetting child murders, for example, might also be another point at which, you know, the issue is raised. 
But once those particular murders sort of leave the headlines, generally that feeling tamps back down a bit as well. Do you have an idea how long it lingers? I mean, the the question I I had in mind was actually, um, you know, although the trajectories for support seems to be downwards, you're getting these very emotive single cases, you know, which which obviously, you know, people are appalled and um, you do get a leap in support. And can you see, for example, that being something that is sustained over a while? Will it make a comeback in support? I don't think it would be sustained from particular cases. I absolutely agree that particular cases can spark off a discussion. I think also if you carry out a poll at that time because people's feelings run high, you can find higher support than, you know, at a point when it's a, a different context. You know, at a point when people have learnt about a miscarriage of justice, for example, that's probably more likely to make them a bit more cautious. However, what I think would open the door to um, the reintroduction of the death penalty, which I don't see as something that's on our horizon in any sense. But what I think would open the door is an increasingly authoritarian politics. So a sort of democratic decline, which unfortunately is something that we're witnessing, I think, in this country, as well as other countries in Europe, for example. I think that would be what the mechanism would be. But the biggest argument, I think, against uh, any upsurge in support seems to me that, as well as looking at overall support for this, if you ask people to prioritise how important is this, you know, is this in your top 10 or your top three political issues, it really does seem to have been tumbling down in importance for, you know, the vast majority of voters, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you met, if you were chatting with someone and they said one of the most important issues to them was reintroduction of the death penalty, you'd be really quite surprised. Like you wouldn't be surprised to hear someone say in the sort of moral abstract they were in favour of it. But if it was one of their top political issues, it would be really quite a really quite a surprise. Yes, no, I, but I agree with what you're saying. That's why I say I would see, you know, in a sort of uh, longer term, and I'm talking in quite dystopian terms here, uh, trajectory of a sort of democratic decline, it would be because it was a benefit to the government. It would be a benefit in terms of, you know, that sort of concentration of hard power and using it in that way. I don't think, you know, that would be linked to it had become a, a top priority for the populace. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Thank you. Thank you very much also for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you enjoyed the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting us to make shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now? and the latest series of Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch, fresh from Kiv. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Seth Tavo. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.